Well, welcome to my podcast. I'm sitting outside in the gardens. It's a glorious September day. And as you can hear, the dogs are very busy and are barking in the background. And I'm sitting here today with Simon, Simon Andrews, our farm manager, to have a little chat about the farm, the conservation, the sustainability, and how we're taking this amazing estate forward. Well, welcome, Simon. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know you are one of the busiest men I've ever met, and yet you still <laughs> seem to keep a sense of humour and still incredibly calm. Well, I always come and see you, Lady Carl, because you are the most important uh, <laughs> person on the estate. Keep happy. I don't think so. I, I do remember when you first came here, Simon, but I can't actually remember how long ago that was. Uh, it's been 12 years now. Has it? So, you haven't changed. Yeah. You look as young as ever. A bit less hair, a bit older, I think, but... Uh, <laughs> But it has been an extraordinary time, hasn't it, in, in, in farming? And I, I'm i not sure where the future holds. I suspect that's what farmers always think every single year. But I think there is a huge amount of uncertainty. And I always feel we're competing with the weather. You know, we need God on our side. We've got um, all the different political goings on. We're working with looking after the land and the soil. So it's an extraordinarily important part of our everyday life. Isn't That's it. it. There's yeah, many things challenging us at the moment. We've had a bad summer again, which we always think next summer will be better. But it never <laughs> seems to be. And we've also got the uh, yeah the Brexit looming thing, but we don't want to dwell on that too much. But there's no. always yeah political dramas, the weather dramas. You know, always machines breaking down, people being ill, or the current crisis. There's always lots going on. When a farmer says a bad summer, what do you mean this year? It seems beautiful weather to me today. That's uh, well, um, the weather's never right for a farmer. <laughs> so it's either <laughs> yes. too wet, too cold, and everything's always too expensive if you're a farmer. But uh, I think it really goes back to the planting last September with the yes. continual rain, the rain all through the autumn. We were for, more fortunate than other people. We got most of our crops in, although they suffered in the wet weather and we didn't get them in when we wanted. Uh, and then it rained all winter, all spring, and then it suddenly stopped. And then it became, you know, the ground was gone too wet, baked dry. And we seem to have been in a cycle of prolonged wet periods, prolonged dry. So it was too dry when the crops were growing. They gave up. Then the first half of harvest was really good. We had nice hot weather and the weather broke and we had three weeks of just continual rain where we couldn't harvest any of the crops and the quality was spoiled. Um, and we then had to cut, you know, through the night. Um, we had to haul the grain to the grain dryer, burn lots of fuel drying it. Um, so it, that's, that's when we say it's been a bad summer. If we'd have had a nice dry, hot summer, everyone would have been happy. But as it was, you know, the rain came at the wrong period for the crops in the UK this year. Do you know, I never knew what it was to be married to a farmer. Mm. There's always something that goes wrong. There's a really good character in Winnie the Pooh called Eeyore, which sometimes I think my husband definitely resembles when it's all going wrong again. I trained, as you might know, as a chartered accountant, and one of the things I most dreaded in any exam was a question about farming income with set-offs. With There was always disasters, how you carried everything forward and how you counted for losses. There never seemed to be any money in it, but it is a way of life. And 
I was looking in the archives the other day and I found references to farming and fields and agriculture here in the in the 14th century, which I just kind of blew me away, Simon. And I think they were growing oats where you're growing them for us today on the on the high up on Crux Eastern. Yeah, well, we seem to be more large-scale gardeners, I suppose, or, or people to look after the landscape as much as commercial farmers. But you're right, we're growing oats today, which have been grown here for hundreds and hundreds of years. For the same purpose, really, but feeding horses now, they would have fed the livestock, which you know pulled their ploughs and, and things back in those days. Whenever I go across the fields up there, I always find it amazing that out of the flint and stony soil comes the crop and actually our food, because I know there's the farming the landscape we're also farming for food i think there is a there is a balance there because we scots porridge oats etc or the quakers oats are a very important part of our diet as well as those of horses and i think you and geordie have built up an amazing oat business which i think he started with his father but now it's such an important part of of our farming life isn't it that's right so with the uh, horse feeds business we're going for 20 plus years I think. It's integral to the estate and the profitability of the farm. It's a, a value-added business for the oats which which grow well on the poorer soils especially at the, the crux eastern side of the farm. You know it keeps the staff busy all year round whether you've got the oats, the haylage. So in the winter time when the arable's quiet they're busy delivering out haylage and oats to, to the customers. And I remember soon after Eddie, my son was born, going up there because there was a new oats processing plant which this is actually before your time, which had just been installed to separate the oats and crush or bruise them or clip them. And and I think the detail that you apply to all that is what I know helps horses eat well. And a horse that eats well, like us, performs better. It's all about the gut and the tummy, isn't it? <laughs> That's it, yeah. So we, there's been a gradual reinvestment, you know, as the farm can afford into the machinery and, and how things work at Crux Eastern with the dust extraction, better bagging equipment so Dory and the poorer chap in the mill doesn't have to pick all the bags up so we've now got the robot palletizer so it's just gradually moving forwards yeah. by the way Sally's done a really nice t-shirt all about high clear horse feet Seems, which is yeah, very she's nice left one in the office <laughs> Which <laughs> is quite fun. Yeah. Gift shop supporting the farm. That's and of course, it, yeah. you, your offices are just above Sally in the gift shop, who sometimes is full of broken biscuits, which are jolly useful to <laughs> dunk into cups of tea or yes, coffee. Yes, yeah, yeah. Trial samples Sally sometimes sends upstairs. <laughs> so I know we grow oats and wheat and barley and beans. We've grown linseed and borage in the past, I think, if I remember right. That's right. We, yeah, we've tried a whole manner of different crops, really. We've got some winter linseed going in this year, which we're drilling, starting drilling today. We've got grass, which has already gone in for the sheep to graze and for horses. And then we grow the traditional wheat on the better land. We've got the oats, spring barley for distilling, for whiskey production. And then again, some of the oats are used as to go into your gin. All the crops on the estate are used somewhere in, a, in another process, really. There's, there's not much wastage. And then behind it all, we've got the sheep. I think Matt the shepherd now looks after, is it what, 1,800 ewes, 1,500 ewes? So we've got eight, 1,800 ewes to go to put into lamb this year. Yeah, they're an integral part of the estate for the landscape that the visitors come to see. We're slowly changing the, the lambing system. We're going more to a, a, a natural outdoor lambing system with a different type of ewe. So lower input, but hopefully similar output. Much more conservation grazing. Sheep that can look after themselves. Less problems with lambing, less problems with feet. More resistant to worms. So we're trying to have less intensive input to the sheep, but maintain a, 
you know, profitable but healthy production from them as well. Well, I think it's a good way to look after sheep. They've mm. got acres and acres to roam around in, and I know that they effectively tramp down the grass. If you're mm. ploughing or putting in a crop to a soil, you're effectively releasing carbon. So Geordie always reminds me that the sheep are the other way round, and they're also fertilising some of the ground as they mm. go, and they're quite an important part of the conservation of Beacon Hill, if I understand that rightly. That's right. So their grazing is integral to, to Beacon Hill. We We stay off when the orchids are flowering and the cowslips and then they're put in to get the grass sward down over the winter so that more natural wildflowers have a bit of daylight and their sheep their feet tread them in and then hopefully in the spring we get some of those seeds regenerate so they're really integral part of the triple SIs and the parkland and they are being used in rotation on the arable so they're following the haylage lays so it's somewhere clean for the sheep to graze there's no worm burden there so we're not relying on the worms so much and then we're growing stubble turnips for the lambs. Again, another part of the arable land. They, they eat the turnips, fertilises the land for the next spring crop. So, of course, I possibly should have mentioned that Beacon Hill is the most extraordinary hill in the middle of Highclere Estate. At the top of it is an Iron Age fort, which I just love. It's sort of, it's remarkably wild for being quite near London. And at the foot of it is some Bronze Age tumuli. And within the Iron Age fort, which dates to about 1400 BC, is the um, grave of the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, who discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun. And Tutankhamun also was born about 1400 BC. So I, I love the parallels and the drawing of history and stories together. But it is much enjoyed. I think by local people is rambling up there. It's quite a climb. <laughs> Whenever I think I'm nearly yeah. up, I'm not quite up there. <laughs> That's it. Well, I think especially this year, it's been very important for you know all the local people and people from further away. Where we had lockdown, it was a an open green space for people to get out, get some fresh air, you know, enjoy the countryside a little bit. So this year's been busier than ever for Beacon Hill. Up there, you have a sense of horizon and perspective, and you're looking at the sky and the clouds and and all those things, which give us a little bit of hope. I think it's been so interesting because we've come and much of our life has been has been very rural and it's only recently we've taken to living within urban non-rural situations and I think when when times are so stressful and for many people so tragic it's been a much harder environment from which to recover so it has been interesting and the the birds and the red kites and the lapwings on Beacon Hill it's been an ex- it's an extraordinarily varied diverse bird population up there isn't it yes we've got at the foot of beacon hill we've got an an area set aside for stone curlies so a bare area of ground and we've had a good success with the stone curly nesting there and then lapwings also use the plot but there's been lots of skylarks this year it seems to be a very good year for them so people can see all that from beacon hill and they can see the red kites it's great for people to get up there and view the nature they can get a good perspective of the estate from there as well on a clear day, a windy winter's day is not so fun, but uh, <laughs> we're trying to catch really a sheep up there. No, yes. <laughs> yeah. As invariably one gets stuck in the brambles and it's the furthest point and hardest to get to. So. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah. Oh, I, I imagine someone's ch- chucked a ball down in the wrong place and it's yes. quite hard to get all the way yeah. down to get yeah. up again. Or someone tells you there's a sheep stuck in the brambles and then it can be quite a task to find it. <laughs> yes, completely. <laughs> they are amazing how they mm. do get stuck. But I'm very fond of the sheep. But what we've actually now also gone into, Simon, and you've been so amazing, is pigs and you and I were standing looking over a fence at a rather sort of deserted unused part of woodland field which hadn't really been used probably for a few decades and rather than clear it with any mechanical means we 
I don't know which of us was responsible, but we came up with the idea of pigs. And then from there, we both went to go and do some research. Within a second, you were back with British lop-eared pigs because they're an endangered native species. So it's not just the wildlife, the extraordinary animals you see on David Attenborough. It's also our domestic animals, which are also endangered by narrow inbreeding, if you like, just to fulfil a purpose of food, which should not be perhaps our reason for looking after them. And so we've gone into British lop pigs and there was when we first started I had read there was only a hundred breeding sows left in the world and they're an amazing pig they fulfilled our criteria because they're um, quite good at being outside all the time which is very important they're quite friendly or they're friendlier than other pigs which is also quite good and and it was a really good project to take on so we started with Thelma and Louise I think wasn't it that's right so I, I'll blame you I'll say it's your idea for pigs <laughs> And we weren't to tell your husband because <laughs> it would have been would have been would have been no he didn't know until we bought them and put the pen up because it would have been a no we're not getting into pig farming but no they've been great I, it was a chance meeting with with one of the breeders brothers he explained to me they'd had pigs the bloodlines in his family going back to 1850 how rare they were and also how friendly they were which was a, a consideration because we hope some of the visitors may be able to you know go and interact with them and see them. So we started off with two gilts, which your husband was left the task to try and name. So <laughs> Thelma and Louise arrived, and then for the first Christmas, we found them a gentleman friend called Ernie. Yes, who came I down for a it. stay. <laughs> <laughs> and no, they've been really good. We, ha- we had two lovely litters to start with, and then invariably we ended up keeping some of the more friendly gilts, yes. of which we ended up with three you aptly named them after lady the... mary <laughs> lady edith and lady sybil That's right so. and lady mary turned out to be incredibly <laughs> friendly and she sort of sits down and loves a good scratch so that was lady mary who is completely unique and then Adam Henson, you were doing some filming with Countryfile. So that's right. We were looking to, to change the breed of sheep we had. Something that was more sustainable would grow well and you know do well on just no input grassland, so no fertiliser sprays and lots of imported food. And I got talking to Adam's uh, stock manager and they managed to have some that we could buy. So there was a few shearlings that we bought from him and he delivered them. And whilst he was down here, we invited him to have a look at the pigs. And it turns out his first ever pet pig was a British lot. Uh, we went and had a look with them and he had a, a cuddle and a scratch and you know, immediately fell in love with them. And then uh, we kept Edith for a bit longer. We put her back to a, a boar that we'd purchased. We found a boar that was unrelated um, we could use. So he bought Edith in pig and she went up there and had a, a little litter with him. So And now she's come back for another visit. Yes. So the, the three Crawley sisters are back together again. They are. <laughs> And then, of course, there was the next bit of the story, which my husband was also not completely aware of, that you and I, I don't know which of us is going to blame the other, decided to go and buy a boar because Ernie kept coming and going. And Giles Eustace, who is the amazing man behind the regeneration of the British lops at Travaskas Farm in Cornwall. So we went down to inspect and try and choose a boar, which I'll never forget. And we ended up choosing Arthur, mainly, I think, because his coat was so white and so clean which is probably not the right reason to choose a boar. But it was a, he was also, again, very friendly. And he's come back now and he's not related to Mary, Edith and Sybil. 
So they're now in pig to him, aren't they? That's right. So we'd used Ernie for a couple of litters and then obviously keeping his offspring, we needed a different boar. And Giles was so helpful in researching the bloodlines. Again, he found us Arthur from one of the oldest, other oldest breeders in Cornwall, where the pigs originated from. And there was a couple of others to choose from. So we went for a trip down to Cornwall, had a look around Giles' stock and these three boars. And yeah, we settled on Arthur. He was pristinely white and very friendly. He'd been showed he was a champion pig at Cornwall show so a bit more interaction with people and show ring he's lovely yes. and quiet and he also likes a, a stroke and a cuddle he does and if you rub his tummy he'll lay down and go to sleep so <laughs> his two aims in life are food and wallows I think one of the laziest pigs we've ever met we've had him here and he's now fathered eight litters Which he's been away nice. on hire actually to some people that bought some of our first litter of piglets so you know, he's got a great life he spends some time with Lady Edith Mary and Sybil and then goes off on hire but he is very 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 quiet and a lovely pig but it's it's just useful we don't have to keep finding other pigs to bring in to breed from if you heard a few bangs and thumps it was actually tails wagging because they've just come back from a walk that Stella and Freya in particular came and said hello but I've just put them away for their next breakfast (laughs) we're back to the topic of pigs and so Arthur arrived from Cornwall and we ended up calling him Arthur because I very much grew up in Cornwall from my childhood and used to go to Tintagel so his full name is now King Arthur of Tintagel or Arthur for short he arrived from Cornwall with Giles down at Ivory Farm and then I think my husband arrived too didn't he he did yeah we were were introducing Arthur to the uh, little gilts and then I think your husband came down to check on his foals and uh, (laughs) wondered what we were all doing leaning on a gate watching (laughs) some pigs being introduced (laughs) I think he's very happy he sort of looks at it quixotically from a distance I'm very fond of them and I was going to go and see them again this afternoon and they are immensely entertaining you can spend hours there doing almost nothing except watching them and Arthur now I have to say looks a much darker shade of white he is thoroughly covered in mud and does look very happy but their wallows are very entertaining actually yeah Arthur really enjoys his wallow and now you he hears you coming when you pull up and he comes running across the field with his lop ears all flopping and bouncing around no he's very very friendly and Thelma and Louise have just had another litter of piglets each so there's um two litters of naughty little piglets running around the paddock but they are great you can go over just for something and you'll find an hour later you're still talking to the pigs and (laughs) (laughs) realize what you've gone over there for but they are great yeah they're great to go and have a watch and it's really good they're very rare I think we forget how rare some of our native species are you know they're five times rarer than a giant panda and everyone knows how rare pandas are yet some of our native pigs are really on the endangered list here really so I hope that, you know, with the help of our marketing, it sort of draws people's attention to the benefits of ensuring that we don't let all our native species become extinct. I'm really happy we've got the pigs that we have and mm. and we're trying to make a line from field to table and in terms of an integrated, long rotation, more old-fashioned traditional approach to farming it's a very mixed farm which is much better for the for the soil and it's a very light till that we're doing for much of the farm as well isn't it that's right so we've got areas of poorer soil that i think it's silly to be trying to force you know bumper crops of wheat from so we've changed and we've got like you say we've got an area of oxide daisies we've got corn flowers corn chamomile and they're being harvested and used for wildflower mixes We've also got stewardship headlands, beetle banks, we've got the bird nesting plots, so we're 
trying to focus on the conservation on, on areas that it would be hard work to get a good yield of wheat from. And then we've also still got the better commercial area of the farm, you know, through the centre. Because we still need yeah. to eat food. Yeah. So it is a really good balance, but it's how we look after the soil and how we mm. look after the animals, which is in a much lighter way. So, funny enough, I'm trying to do my next book, Simon, and what some of my thoughts are about, that they have all these 5-2 ideas of how to lose the weight, which I'm sure would be very good. I was also thinking in some ways it was more four or five days of more vegetable-based suppers and dinners and more or two days of meat so it's eating meat but perhaps less often rather than what we can always buy continually for the processed meat I think we do need to have a pause and think about perhaps how we how we live in order to manage the planet's resources because I don't think there's never been so many people here anyway we're in it's an interesting junction that we're living through and this is the most extraordinary estate because of its extent in this very busy area of England and I hope it's like a green breathing space and lungs for animals and nature and fallen down trees and the beetle banks and then I know that we've got the group of people who are very interested in fungi and the microphilia coming up to see another special interest area by the Temple of Diana, which I think is full of rather rare fungi, so, as far as I understand. Yeah, there's, there's rare fungi, but we've also got a, a good population of field gentians, yes. which, which are a very rare little flower. And we have endless people that we, you know, we allow to come onto the estate for surveys of birds, flowers, fungi, bats. You know, we've got it's it's opened up to a lot of people to come and have a little look around. So, and we do wild bird. We use four and a half tons of wild bird seed mixture that we use in the winter. So we put out for the birds. It's spread all over the estate. And the number of birds we've seen over the winter return on the stubbles and the wild bird, you know, food sections are, is amazing. I think Eddie had noticed the difference, you know, for when he was young. And then Eddie after, Hughes, our old keeper, that's you it, mean? Yeah. Yes. After two or three years of us putting the wild bird food out, he was so excited about how many birds had returned for the winter, and it's helping them. We've been last year was a, a mild winter, but when we had the snow, we suddenly so many little birds was you know depending on that food to survive for the winter. I think yeah, it's it's good all round for these wildflower strips, bird strips, stubbles, and and the conservation way we're grazing with the sheep, you know, sowing more grass for them to use rather than putting lots of nitrogen on the ground. So I think it's really working. So it's a I hope it's an integrated way of both growing food, people to eat and and ensuring that nature has the space and we're not trampling mm. over it the whole time. It's completely fascinating. And then there's a lot of amazing trees and woodland scattered around which are peaceful without people walking through there, which allows animals to walk through there in their own pace without being disturbed by us all the time so we've got many many footpaths on the estate and permissive ones but i think people do need to remember there's also the wildlife areas are for the wildlife not for people to go and look at the wildlife yes so sometimes we have to stop people that have strayed off the footpath and just try and let them know what the areas are for and 99 percent of people are really appreciative and think it's really interesting it is really interesting i think it's completely fascinating simon and it's an amazing estate to have as i said quite so close to london in many ways well we are we we're split in half by the a34 and there's hundreds of thousands of people pass every day isn't there yeah well less in lockdown actually it was rather peaceful we did stop on the bridge into the castle and take a picture of the A34 during lockdown because it was you could see between the two bridges of here and Ivory Farm you couldn't see a car, which is pretty unusual yeah. and pretty yeah. amazing. Mm. And we noticed driving around you actually got bugs back on your windscreen of your car yes. during lockdown, which is something you haven't seen for years. No, yeah. that's really important. Mm. I remember 
driving down to call with my parents and the windscreen would be covered in bugs mm. by the end and my parents would be topping up, making sure the, yeah. the windscreen water was topped up. And I suppose the, the last animal that we have here, which is dear to Geordie's heart, is his thoroughbred mares and foals, which give yes. him so much pleasure. And in a sense, we're trying to link that into Highclere Castle horse feeds and the oats that we produce and how good they are for a horse's digestion. Again, it's about what we eat and how well horses perform and their good digestibility. And we're now selling them into many trainers. So again, horses aren't having processed food, but we're actually having what's natural, which the more I've read and researched, the more I've understood, the more fascinating I find it, actually, Simon. That's right. We've learnt, I think, getting back to a natural diet for the horses, more fibre, less manufactured feed seems to be doing... You know, we, we found it with your own horses... It's really improving their health and, and fitness. It is. I think it was last week that um, our horse, Bella Notte, won a race. Yeah, it was to... such an exciting yeah. moment in, in quite a challenging and gruelling few months. It was. It really lit us all up. And the other thing was it was 66 to 1 and Geordie's put his five pounds each way. Put more money on. but uh... I know. <laughs> but yes. it was a moment. And, and she's a very nice horse. And Maggie, who helps us with the horses, does... And Sam, who also aids and abets her, we are all incredibly focused on on how we feed them and the digestibility and the haylage we've given them. So it's all very wet and digestible and has got all the possible mix of proteins and everything else in it. But it's, as ever, every single day I learn something I never knew. But over the last year or so, actually, I think the pigs have given me some of the greatest pleasure and I'm going to be going up this afternoon. It'd be fun to see if I didn't whether we're allowed ever to bring two or three piglets up or at some point near the castle just to have a time when they are perhaps not on the lawns. They'd probably dig it all up, wouldn't they? But we'll have to work it out, Simon, because they are entirely engaging. Yeah, you could have a couple of little piglets up to the castle. We did the same with some bottle-fed lambs, a couple of... A couple of years ago, do you remember? I do. Yeah, so we could try with a couple of little piglets, <laughs> put them in a pen, but probably not on the lawn. I don't think the gardeners would be too pleased. <laughs> no, and I think we'd probably have to wait till next year because yes. it would probably cluster people around it, and mm. which I suppose we are definitely trying to avoid. One of my favourite times of day, Sam, is when I go out late at night with the dogs and it's looking up at the stars, which seem to have been even brighter this year than before and sometimes I've been hearing a barn owl I'm sure in the trees but I know that you actually have got some barn owls in was it Manor Farm this year or where are they now? We've been fortunate enough we've put some boxes up um, and we've had uh, two hatches this year we've had some at Manor Farm and some at our Crux Eastern Farm and we have Matt Stevens from the Hawk Conservancy, which are locally based. He comes out and does monitoring. And uh, this year, yeah, we, he's tagged the chicks. And fingers crossed they'll fledge and have some more barn owls around the estate. How fantastic. I mean, I can definitely hear an owl hooting. One used to sit down sometimes on the on a on a fence post in the middle of the park and it sounds as if it's behind me in the trees but perhaps it's quite hard to exactly hear where it is but they are the most extraordinary animals aren't they? I think it's lovely to see the barn owls in the evenings along the grass margins Mm -hmm. and on the grass in the park here where they're hunting they just you know such lovely birds to see flying around and and the chicks are so adorable when they're we're lucky enough to see them because the hawk conservancy come out but when they're just a little balls of fluff 
It's just so lovely. Yeah. It's rather like the little piglets when they come yes. out, or the little lambs when they yes. come out. Yeah. They're always really sweet, yeah. and then then they grow a little bit bigger. And mm. Arthur definitely has his own point of view about where he's going. And I think it's Selma, isn't it, one of the British lops who is fairly strong-minded. And I remember you and I chasing her around a field trying to get her inside a we, hut for ages. Yes, yeah. She had decided she was going to have her piglets outside. In the <laughs> and cold there was weather. No, there was no changing that, no. No, no. So that, that was that. But actually, they did really well and they survived. They so. have, all survived, so that was a happy ending, really. Simon, thank you so, so much for sitting with me here today in your incredibly busy life. But I really appreciate it. Every single time I talk to you, I learn something else. And it is a joy and a privilege to have you working at Highclay with us. Thank thank you. you. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying my podcast as much as I'm enjoying making them. Do let your friends and family know about them. Subscribe. And if you're feeling generous, please leave a review. Thank you.